0: Welcome back to Mid-Wretched,
1: everyone. Welcome back, friends. Hi. <laughs> Did you forget to break up your mic? Oh, boobs. Oh, sorry. Those were my boobs. Uh, it's my lung <laughs> shirt. You like it? Aw, very cute. Yeah, I got it when we were in the hospital. Um, actually, no, I just, well, so I'm sitting at um, thing number one's mini- Mickey Mouse table on the floor of my living room, uh-huh. and um, it's a small table, so I have to figure out kind of the best placement for my microphone and it may just be best if i hold it i don't remember what i did last week
0: yeah like this mic is so much more sensitive than my old one
1: yes it is very sensitive murder husband picked up uh you yawning a couple times (laughs) it's late (laughs) i'm I'm sleepy i know it's not because i'm boring
0: no it's not good but anyway, yeah, I realize I can't keep putting my beer down on the table, so I have to, like, move it over no, elsewhere. No, yeah,
1: it's going to go, like, thunk.
0: Yeah, I didn't notice that until after, so apologies, fans and listeners,
1: of I
0: got a fancy
1: new microphone. Yeah. And
0: fans I'm not used to having nice things.
1: No, you're not. Um, speaking of nice things, I have decided to stop pumping my boobs. Yay! And because of that, I can drink beer again. Ooh. And in honor of uh, tonight's story, I'm drinking my favorite beer from back home, which is Atwater Breweries Vanilla Java Porter.
0: That sounds so delicious. So I'm just making
1: a plug for Atwater because I love Atwater. And I've been feeling like a little bit homesick and I'm telling a hometown story today. So <laughs> I saw it at Martin's and I was like, all right, that's what we're going to be drinking tonight.
0: That's a, That feels appropriate. I'm just drinking a Modelo because I had tacos for dinner. Ooh, nice. We had people over to taste test the wedding menu last <gasps>
1: night. Who? Mindy and Hattie. Hi, friends. Okay, that's fine, I guess.
0: I Could have know. invited me. I'm sorry. I'll invite you next time. I'm sorry. I didn't think you wanted to drive an hour and a half just for tacos. Girl, have you met me? I have. I'm sorry. They were really good. That doesn't. And I have help. white claw in my fridge now.
1: <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> From chilling with those two, I love them. Uh,
0: of course, love I those do. ladies. And then, and then today's dinner was like the
1: microwaved
0: leftover tacos mm. and just microwave chicken. Just
1: yeah, it's not the best. It has a distinct taste. It does. It does. It does. Yeah. Now that um, I've been officially uh forced to quit my job officially Mm -hmm. um my domestic engineer timeline has begun um exciting yes and as such i'm cooking more because we just lost half of our income but also um i'm here so i may as well right and we live in the middle of nowhere so it's not like i can get delivery so my god there's nothing that delivers to you no there's literally nothing nothing. whole foods you can get whole foods delivered via amazon it's awesome yeah not usually same day unless you order it in the morning but still it's it's very useful um but otherwise you can't get like a restaurant meal delivered or anything like that so yes so cooking a lot which is weird everything is weird Everything cooking is fun. I love cooking. I don't. I really no. don't. I don't enjoy cooking. I enjoy the product, and I'm a very good cook. I'll give myself that. Um, I just don't enjoy the process at all. Mm. You know? Yeah. I like the outcome. So what are we doing today? So I am uh, very excited about today, and also today really ended up just doing a number on my brain once again. So um, I will be very, very curious for your take once i make a conclusion i well once i give you the conclusion of this story i do want to say real quick for those that didn't see on our social media that there was an arrest made in the anita Knutsen case which we That's covered uh last year i want to say it was episode nine 40 something no 49 it was 49 i'm pretty sure um let me make sure that i'm right though before i it
0: was one of our later ones. It's episode forty. Our break. It
1: was episode forty. So from last June, yeah, episode forty, we covered the murder of Anita Knudsen, and an arrest was made a few weeks ago. Um, and guess what? We were right. We were right. It was the roommate. Um, and it, I mean, she has only been arrested. She has not been found guilty right, yet. Right, right. But an arrest has been made. Uh, very curious to see how that will kind of go down. In court. So that's one big update I wanted to talk about. Um, The other big update is in, it's not a big update yet, but in real life true crime, as in the person that I know that is currently (gasps) awaiting trial uh, for first degree murder. Uh, It's taken a long time to get anything underway. She has tried to get her case dismissed, uh, citing Mm -hmm. that she has not been able to um, get her right to a fair and speedy trial. The court came back and was like, nobody did because we're in a pandemic. Well, sorry for pandemics. Yeah. But. So an indictment is expected to come down uh, within the next month. And once that comes down, I think I will be talking in snippets about that case uh, here and there, kind of as it unfolds. Oh, yeah. I'm very, very excited about that. I am very curious how it goes down. For sure. For sure.
0: I will also say just, and maybe you can tell me if you want to edit this, mm-hmm. but uh, we have been talking, uh, Tommy and I have been talking in the background a lot about the Delphi murders. Yes. We've been following that one pretty closely. Mm. You a lot more closely than I am, Miss, like snagging <sighs> court documents.
1: I know. I, I live, eat, sleep, and breathe Delphi. I mean, I don't know. It just really, it has gotten to me and it's just like, it's a, it's made itself a part of my, like, everyday soul at this point so so
0: we are following it pretty closely and i think that we are thinking about possibly doing like you know if anything does happen Mm -hmm. i think tommy is like ready at the go to i am very (laughs)
1: ready i hesitate to do it now because i think the landscape right now is um i think things are heating up things are heading in the right direction Mm -hmm. um i think an arrest could be on the horizon. In the next you know year, I hope, like, yeah. but so much of what's going on right now is a lot of conjecture um yeah. and I just I don't know that I want our show to get wrapped up in that right now, you know,
0: there have been a lot of episodes about it and a lot of other shows, and some of them have done it really well, mm. other ones there's been a lot of speculation, which I don't want to do, but it is on our which radar. And I think as soon as we have some actual answers, we do really
1: want to cover it. Yeah. And as soon as we have those answers, we absolutely will cover it. Uh, Murder Boxer is here. And she's gone straight to her crate, even though she didn't have to. <laughs> she's allowed to come here and snuggle. I'm just sitting on the floor. Hey. hi, Hey, good girl. She's such a good dog now. Okay. So today's case. Let's go. (laughs) As I get licked on the chin. Okay. So uh, as our longtime listeners will recall, way, way back in the way back when we were just babies starting this show, episodes two and three, we covered the Ypsilanti Ripper killings in Ypsilanti, Michigan in the late 1960s. Uh, If you have not listened to those episodes, I would definitely suggest going back and listening to those. It's not prerequisite for this episode at all. it's just that's the landscape that this case falls into. So Cliff's Notes version is that uh, in the span of those murders, like I said, in the late 60s in Ypsilanti, Michigan, um, seven girls, uh, young women, girls ranging in age from 13 to 23 were murdered uh, within a pretty quick timeline, within about 18 months. And of those murders... One always stood out as being a little bit different from the rest of the timeline. And that's the murder that we're going to talk about today. So, um, and we'll, I'll, I have some, I have a lot to say about this, uh, at the end. <laughs> um, and I'll say this now. I had a passing knowledge. Well, I have more than a passing knowledge about the Epsilanti Ripper case, obviously. Um, I yes. had a passing knowledge about what ended up happening in this particular case what i learned in the course of the research for this episode has messed up my whole brain so buckle up is what i say i am buckled i'm buckled with a sloth blanket and i'm ready to go oh i have a mushroom blanket that's funny our blankets are so animated so i'm going to start with a quote from uh jane mixer's diary jane mixer is uh our victim today She wrote in 1966, and I chose this quote just because I feel like it kind of, um, in all of my research, uh, it really kind of captured what I thought of as her spirit and her personality, and so I wanted to open with something that felt like her. I'm going to talk about sources also um, a little bit because those are interesting in this case too. So in 1966, Jane writes this, questioning is healthy. Opinions that are unstable are great. Pseudo certainty is the worst crime. Nothing is absolute. No one has all the answers. Pretense is hideous. This whole essay is a bunch of crap. I just love her. I like her. I know. I love her. Um, I would totally. Yeah. 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 She would I be like friends. A we would be. We would be friends with her. No doubt. Hundred percent. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, Jane Mixer in 1969 was a 23-year-old law student at the University of Michigan. She was uh, an aspiring civil rights attorney. She really was um, very, very committed to social justice. And uh, she was not only committed to that, like, kind of in passing, but she worked for campaigns. She volunteered. She, like I said, was going to law school to be a civil rights lawyer. She really lived her beliefs. Um, And that is just, I want to kind of make sure that we know that about her, that um, to make sure that that, like, the fierceness of her personality does not get lost Mm -hmm. to time, you know. So I'm going to take us to spring break 1969 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Ann Arbor, as we know, is the home of the University of Michigan, which is obviously a huge university. Uh, It is tucked next to Ypsilanti, Michigan, which is where Eastern Michigan University is. Um, In... The late in March of 69, um, Ypsilanti, the Ypsilanti area, which is Ypsilanti, Ann Arbor, um, and kind of the outlying regions kind of in Washtenaw County and Wayne County, um, that western edge of Wayne County in southwestern Michigan, um, has seen two murders of uh, two young college students at this point. Um, So the community is... You know kind of hackles up uh at this point that's the backdrop now jane mixer is like i said 23. she is preparing to go home to muskegon michigan for spring break muskegon is on the uh very western edge of michigan's lower peninsula it's about uh depending on how you drive probably two and a half to three hours uh from muskegon to ann arbor google maps told me it was two hours and 33 minutes um I drive like a grandma (laughs) it's probably more like three hours
0: I could make it in like two fifteen. yeah you're a crazy driver
1: (laughs) I'm not so um so she you know she's close to home but she's you know she's getting ready to go home for spring break she um is going home for spring break basically with one main goal in mind which is to share the news of her recent engagement with her parents and sister Um, And her brother as well. Now, this would be good news, but Jane uh, in the last couple of years had also been kind of estranged from her family um, because of her political views. Her Mm. parents were uh, very, very conservative. Dr. Daniel and Marion Mixer. Uh, Dr. Mixer was a a practicing dentist, but also just a very prominent member of his community. Um, He had a lot of uh friends in high places he was very well connected um kind of a a bit of a mover and shaker in town muskegon's like a medium-sized city um nothing too exciting but also not a small town necessarily um but they were definitely very traditional people and jane uh was very very progressive very liberal and she was getting ready to um Announced her engagement to a Marxist Jewish guy named Phil. So, um, (laughs) needless to say, I love Phil and, um, but Jane was apprehensive that her parents were going to have a a big reaction to this. Um, she was also preparing to move to New York city with Phil because he had accepted a job, um, Mm -hmm at a university on the east coast and she was going to transfer her law schooling from u of m to either nyu or columbia yeah she was really extremely talented um yeah and so was phil um so she had kind of talked this through with her sister barb kind of beforehand to start kind of planning how the conversation would go this is where i can talk about sources Mm -hmm. for a minute just to kind of put this out there so Uh, We have a lot of access to some personal information because uh, Jane's niece, Maggie Nelson, is a very successful author um, who wrote two books specifically about uh, Jane and her murder. Um, Yeah, the thing about these books is that they are literature first Um, they're not true crime books. They are books of poetry. Um, they also kind of bring in some of Jane's journals, some real life stuff, some conjecture stuff, a lot of personal stuff from, from the author, Maggie Nelson. Um, so I, I, say that with that in mind, the first one, especially, which is called Jane is very much, um, very, very personal to Maggie Nelson. It's, it's mostly poetry. The second one is called The Red Parts. Uh, and that is a little bit more on the true crime end i think after um some movement started to happen in this case there was a compulsion to write another book um but yeah like if if you're interested in this case and you also love literature i certainly recommend these books i would say they are not to be taken as like a true crime account of this case okay yeah, like if you're if you want like details mm-hmm. and a true crime it's narrative, that, yeah. this yeah. Isn't it? Um Unfortunately, to put together the true crime narrative, um, the sources for that specifically had to be kind of a hodgepodge. Our old friend Taryn and was useful again. Um, mostly newspapers um, were pretty much kind of where I had to really deep dive for this but the upshot yeah. of all the work that maggie nelson has done and kind of her obsession with her aunt jane uh and her case is that we do have this kind of um access to just jane's spirit for lack of a better term her vibe her kind of whole deal as a person because maggie nelson had access to her diaries nice, nice. so uh yeah jane needs a ride doesn't have a car Phil is not available yet. He's planning to come to Muskegon in a few days, a few days into spring break, to, you know, hang out with the Mixer fam. So what the University of Michigan had at the time was uh, a ride board. So in the basement of the student union, there was this big map where they had it sectioned out into numbered regions. So if you wanted to ride to a certain place, you would just write a note. And there were like little cubby boxes that coordinated to um, the numbered regions on the map so jane left a note yeah smart right uh feels safer than hitchhiking right like taking it totally to chance yeah Um,
0: yeah probably safer than a greyhound too yeah maybe
1: uh at least well yeah you would know that the only people that were gonna see it were people that had access to the basement of the student center so there is that yeah although that is a public building so
0: i don't know i've had scary experiences on the greyhound
1: me too. I've also had scary experiences in the basements of student centers. Ours yeah. was real creepy. <laughs> Ours was really creepy. It was so creepy. Like,
0: no one was ever down there, and when they were, it was like, ugh.
1: That computer lab, scary. Even the coffee shop, kind of like...
0: Kind of not okay. Weird
1: vibes, yeah.
0: I really hope that they have fixed that up since we left.
1: Oh, they have they tore down and basically redid the entire campus, basically. It Good. looks like a different place. Good, but also sad. Yeah, it just, it always deserved better. It did. It did. Anyway, anyway, back to... Back Ipsilene. to Jane. Yeah. Back to Jane. So, uh, Jane left a note that said, would appreciate hearing from anyone who might be driving to Muskegon anytime Thursday, 3 69 So, she heard from a man called David Johnson, who said he would pick her up at the Law Quad on Thursday at 6.30 p.m., so the way that I took this um, was that the law quad would obviously be outside, and Jane's uh, dorm would have looked out onto the law quad, um, such that she was able to be by her phone um, mm-hmm. and kind of watch from her window when David Johnson showed up. But at six thirty, David Johnson did not show up. Um, Phil, the boyfriend called or fiance, I should say. Um, Phil called to check on her at about 7, and she answered the phone, and she was still waiting. Uh, he called her again an hour later, and no one answered. So he assumed that the ride had shown up somewhere between the 7 and 8 o'clock hours. Um, now, sometime in that window, because David Johnson was late, Jane took to the phone book, found David Johnson, and called the phone number. The phone number okay. was for a frat house. Um, so that parses, right? Yeah, yeah. A frat bro at the frat house said later that she called at about 630. Um, and they told Jane on the phone that it was a wrong number. Um, they had a David Johnson living there, but he mm-hmm. had nothing to do with Muskegon. That's a pretty common name. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and their David Johnson was also performing in a play that night and every night of spring break. Got so it. he yeah. would not have been so leaving no town. way it's him. No way it's yeah. him. No way it's him. But sometime after that call somebody must have shown up Mm -hmm. because Jane grabbed her bags and headed out um it's conceivable that she was attempting to do something else like hitchhike or um hit the bus station or whatever um my hunch is that whoever David Johnson I say that with scare quotes is yeah exactly Yeah. yeah um
0: what, I feel like if she was going to hitchhike, she or anything else, she probably would have told like a friend, yeah, or, like, left a note or something. And
1: I think she would have done it already,
0: you know, yeah. or she yeah. would
1: have waited until the next day for daylight. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, late March in Michigan, as late March in the entire Midwest is is real shitty. <laughs> it's shitty. You are not going to be outside. It's, it's raining. It snowed here four days ago. Like it snowed here yesterday. It's not pleasant. It's not yeah. pleasant. So, um, but either way you slice it, Jane Mixer would not be seen alive again. Okay. Um, so that night her parents were expecting her and she did not arrive in Muskegon. Her parents were obviously concerned. So her dad decided to, um, head out to try to trace her route back. Um, Mm -hmm. kind of with the assumption that there had to have been some kind of accident, that she had, you know, gotten into somewhere in between Ann Arbor and Muskegon. So yeah. um, so he got in the car, and he assumed it sounded like that he would find her just kind of stranded somewhere um, along the highway. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, it's about two and a half to three hours. It's uh, one highway all the way through. You take 96, shoot it all the way over. Um, yep. It's a terrible drive in the winter. <laughs> What's interesting to me is that dad hit Lansing, And decided to turn back and head home. Okay. Don't know precisely why he turned back at that point, but Lansing to Ann Arbor is not that far. So I wonder if he thought, like, if I haven't found her by now, it's not likely that something bad happened in the very first leg of her trip. Or he got tired.
0: I I don't know. Yeah, I get. I don't know. That's just—it's a weird decision to me.
1: Yeah, I—I I thought it was kind of strange. I um, there's not an exact time on this that's known. Um, I know that when he got home and called the police, it was about midnight. So, um, it's also just plausible that he was getting tired. It was late, um, and that he thought he might need some extra help. Kind of either way. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So either way, he had. I don't. I. I say all that to mean I don't think anything insidious was going on with Dad yeah, going all yeah. the way through. Um, so he, he turns back. He goes home to Muskegon. Um, he gets home. He tells Marion, his wife, that he, you know, was not able to find her. So he calls Phil first. And Phil says the exact same thing. He spoke to her at about 7. Um, when he called at 8, she didn't answer. He assumed that the ride got there. Um, if the ride showed up at 7 say um she certainly would have been home by 10 so 10 10 30 yeah if they yeah. didn't stop for food you know so it it now being midnight and past midnight um she, yeah there was well enough of a window for her to get home
0: oh yeah 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 so and now you're starting to worry and-
1: yes and everybody is worried now phil is worried um Jane's parents are worried. Everybody is worried. So Dr. Mixer calls the police. And he calls his local police, but because he's very well-connected, he was able to get Jane on the police's radar in Ann Arbor pretty much right away. Um, Mm -hmm. And so police in Ann Arbor were looking for her, had a picture of her, even though it was nowhere near the 48 hours required to officially, like, file her as a missing person. Yeah. We're also talking about a landscape where authorities in washtenaw county know that they have an active serial killer afoot yeah yeah because she's not the first girl to go missing no uh in this timeline she would be the third yeah so we're not you know in the in the total thick of the ipsilanti ripper case yet she makes the third um the third girl found so yeah
0: yeah, but we find we have enough reason for cops to not just be like, oh, she must have just wandered off, or oh, she's
1: an adult. Right. Like, they have it on their radar. Yeah. Uh, I will say, too, that Jane was um, a very organized person. Um, from mm-hmm. what I read in, like, Maggie Nelson's books, kind of with her diaries and stuff like that, she seemed very, like, type A, honestly. Yeah. Like, very kind of... Um, structured person yeah so yeah i just don't think anyone would have bought it that she just kind of like would wing it you know yeah yeah so i'm gonna take us to the very next morning okay um the next morning mark stephen grow who is a 13 year old middle schooler is walking to his school bus stop along denton road in belleville michigan which is about 15 miles east of Ann Arbor. Um, to put that into some kind of regional context, you've got Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. Um, and like I said, Belleville is about 15 miles east. You're out mm-hmm. of Washtenaw County. You're into uh, the, the very western edge of Wayne County. So you have a different jurisdiction going mm-hmm. on here. Um, it would at that time have been fairly rural, now, it this exact region where Mark Stephen Groh was walking, is still has that vibe to it. It's about uh, three and a half minutes from my mother's house. So I know this, um, this area extremely well. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, looking at pictures of it then and looking at it now, very similar mm-hmm. kind of vibe. Um, so, you know, Mark is walking home, or I'm sorry, walking to his bus stop he finds a plastic bag. In the plastic bag is a wrapped present, a birthday card, some notebooks, and what looks like homework, basically. Essays, like, okay. articles, written work. You know, it looks like yeah, a yeah, dossier. Yeah. So uh, Mark is sharp enough to know that this looks important. Somebody dropped mm-hmm. their a birthday present and their homework. If I found that and I'm 13, I would be like, oh, someone's going to get in trouble. I was going to say, that would be my exact thought. I was like, oh, God, someone's getting in trouble. Yeah, yeah, totally. So he doubles back and goes home to his mom, Nancy, and gave it Mm -hmm. to her. And she um, was like, okay, I'll take care of it. Gets him, hightails it to the bus stop, gets him to school. Um, She didn't think that much of it until she came home again after getting him to the bus stop uh, and looks further into the bag. She dumps out the bag, and um, there is congealed blood at the bottom of the bag. Eek! Yes.
0: Is this like what kind, like a book
1: bag or a canvas bag? Or... It's a shopping bag. Okay. Okay. So I take that to mean, um, if I'm thinking about shopping bags in the '60s, like a tote. Yeah, you know, like a tote like bag, a like a Bloomingdale's kind of tote. tote. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, Nancy is freaking out. At this point Mm -hmm. um, she heads out and um, for reasons that she cannot exactly quantify to this day she turns into the nearby denton cemetery i will say because i again i know this like the back of my hand mark stephen grow is walking along denton road Um, that cemetery is quite large uh, in land area and Mm -hmm. all of these houses including the grow house back into the cemetery um okay yeah oh, that's my dream <laughs> it's you know it's a cute area honestly i love belleville they have a great starbucks and a couple of actually shockingly good arabic restaurants um so um that's kind of what the front end of this looks like is you know the kind of um houses you know uh rural ish backed up into Mm -hmm. this cemetery and then behind the cemetery you've got um a service drive so it's not the most like walkable place in the world because the grows live right along that cemetery uh it seems plausible to me that somebody would kind of turn into it to then turn around to get better access to the service drive Um, yeah so that it parsed to me when i first read it i was like she why would she go to the cemetery and then i thought about it and it, it made sense just regionally that you would kind of dip in there Dupe in, turn around, shoot back out. Yeah, you know. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: but she turns into the cemetery, uh, and she makes a terrifying discovery. Um, from a distance, she can see a body draped over a grave. Oh um, my god! Yes. She felt compelled to get out of her car, walk towards the body a little bit, and then she got really, really, really scared and freaked out went back into her car um, and drove to her sister's house, which was very close. Um, And she's pounding on her sister's door, just crying, crying, crying. uh, And they called the police. So um, obviously the police show up at the scene. Um, When they arrived there, what they saw was the body of a young woman covered in a raincoat. Underneath the raincoat, she was still dressed but her pantyhose and skirt were pulled down. Um, this is where some of the kind of faulty reporting, mm-hmm. you know, and I ranted mm-hmm. about this with Ipsy Ripper. Um, I was going to say I remember some of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, some of those very old accounts say that when her, um, her skirt was pulled down, you could see an intact pad, menstrual pad um later in court one exhibit of evidence that they pull out is uh, a used tampon in a jar um conceivably she was wearing both a pad and a tampon yeah don't know um it's conceivable her shoes were off one was laid on her stomach and the other one next to her body along with a copy of catch 22 uh, by joseph heller with phil's name written on the inside jacket her um, suitcase was also mm-hmm. laid next to her that she had obviously been planning to go um, yeah. across the state with. She had been shot in the head with a twenty two caliber weapon. Jesus. Yeah. Twice. She had also been garroted so tightly on her throat that the ligature actually disappeared into her skin to where you could not see oh, the ligature itself anymore. God. Yes. Yes. Um, the ME medical examiner showed up pretty quick, um, because they already had a picture and their antennae up about Jane Mixer. They were able Mm -hmm. to make a tentative match, um, between the body and a photo of Jane. Um, and the Mixers were already in town and were able to positively ID her body that afternoon by four o'clock.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, um... Dr. Mixer and Marion were able to confirm that that was, in fact, Jane. Okay. So, oh, go ahead.
0: Nothing, it's just, it's a very gruesome scene.
1: It is a gruesome scene. It's gruesome, and one of the kind of arguments that you do see a lot about this case is how the degree of staging that Mm -hmm. that was, like, um, her stuff was Folded neatly next to her. It was not, like, strewn about. Um, Her stuff was kind of in, like, a neat pile. Yeah. Interesting. She was covered with the coat. Um, But her shoes were in disarray. Like, one next to her and one on her her body. That's kind of odd, right?
0: But also, like, how would one end up on her body? I wonder if they were both on her body and one of them fell off.
1: Yeah, very possible. And
0: then it it was, like, tossed back onto her. It's just, it's so... Like somebody spent a lot of time staging that,
1: conceivably, right? Um, you would,
0: I think. Am I wrong?
1: That's well, I think detailed. that's the debate. I think that's the debate. So, mm-hmm. two things would come up with the grow family. One okay. is that when Mark was walking, he later recalled that he saw what looked to him like drag marks in the dirt road um, that he was walking along okay um mr grow daddy grow was working in his garage the night before the body was found and about midnight mm-hmm. saw a cream-colored station wagon enter the cemetery turn around and leave uh, okay if the scene was like staged 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 my sense is that the station wagon was not there long enough to be the culprit. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was like
1: that was my kind of second
0: thought there because your first thought is like, ooh, okay, but then I was like if it just turned around. Mm-hmm. And oh, I've spent a lot of time in cemeteries. Yeah. Um I just like them. I think they're neat. Mm. Um they're a pretty easy place to turn around especially if they're not like gated or anything like that yeah, and they're yeah. just kind of like integrated into the community and if you have this row of houses that backs up into the cemetery mm-hmm. then probably people do that all the time and it wouldn't even cross your mind to think about it, like yes.
1: to make a mental note of yes it was not unusual for people to turn around in the cemetery that service mm-hmm. drive there um was and is a very annoying stretch of road Um, One would have many good reasons to need to turn around in that region. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you can buy that it was a coincidence that everything happened to end up neatly piled, then it's conceivable that the cream-colored car was important. I don't know.
0: I don't know if I can say... If I can... Convince my mind that that was a coincidence because she was, you said she was strewn over the gravestone. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, yeah, I don't know if I can convince myself of that.
1: Yeah. Well, I will say that um, one of the ways that this has gotten dramatized as well is like it's described as she's like laid over a stone, which mm-hmm. um, visually I think that you'd immediately go to like an above ground mm-hmm. monument. Um, But this was a a flush with the ground gravestone. Oh, Mm
0: -hmm. oh, okay. That changes everything. Yes, yes, yes. That changes a lot. Because in my head, it was definitely like a headstone, like a pillar headstone.
1: No, it was not. It was not. Okay. But that's, you know, and and some of the like articles and some of the the books about this case that shall remain nameless um, certainly make it sound like that i think mm. to make it mystical make it more dramatic yes. and magical there's a lot of dog noises going on today guys I'm sorry. <laughs> there We're really are people. mine is going bonkers so um yeah back to our back to our scene here
0: so yeah so yeah i think because you know when you hear something and you create the visual of it, the visual is going to be more dramatic probably than the reality.
1: Yes. And so that's kind of like what I, what I felt like working on the Ipsy Ripper case. Uh, and also with this one is also just breaking down a lot of the kind of dramatization mm-hmm. around it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and to stick with what we know to be absolute fact. So yes. So the autopsy on Jane's body started at four o'clock that day. Um the doctor who examined her body, his name was Robert Hendricks. Um, he estimated her time of death to be between midnight and three. Um, and so if the car was involved, the car was there at midnight, that's just at the very start of that window. And he concluded that she was not killed where she was found. He felt that she was held somewhere, uh, beforehand. Um, the ligature around her throat was a pair of cinnamon-colored nylons that were not hers. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Interesting.
1: There were small uh, granules, bits of detergent, soap, yeah. found on her coat and other um, articles of clothing, which mm-hmm. uh, led the police to believe she, if she had been held somewhere, it was probably somewhere like a laundry room um somewhere mm. like that i
0: because i'm allergic to those i know this very well that they just stick on your clothes
1: really yeah 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 hmm. interesting yeah okay
0: they will if you don't especially if like you have a shared washer dryer oh um, and the washer doesn't rinse them very well mm. the dryer will just make them stick on your clothes
1: huh okay and then you will get hives if you're me ouch well, we're going to come back to those granules later.
0: Okay. Okay. I'm just saying.
1: Yeah. No, I appreciate you saying. <laughs> so uh, who do you think the police want to talk to first?
0: Um, Probably whoever talked to her last, which would have been those frat boys, her parents, um, and anyone who would have seen her leaving the campus.
1: Yeah. And poor dear Phil. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So Phil. Always Phil. Uh, Phil was brought in, um, and he described a very loving relationship between him and Jane. Mm -hmm. He was, um, finishing up a PhD, uh, I believe in economics. He and Jane had actually met in a class that he was TAing for, um, and fell in love basically sharing their ideals about a better world, um. They were kind of, to my mind, kind of a perfect love story amid the backdrop of the civil rights era. Um, He described her as an excellent student, a conscientious person, um, a razor-sharp person, smart, lovely. She loved to travel. Um, They had been on a trip to France together recently. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was just really ready to start her life um, of... Academia and adventure with Phil on the East Coast, (laughs) honestly. So during this questioning, Phil was visibly shaken, distraught, disturbed, and the police's gut instinct was that he did not have anything to do with it. Um, They did ask him, obviously, to stay local for now. Please don't go ahead and go to New York yet. but they yeah and they they crossed their t's they dotted their i's but he was never really considered to be a suspect um and they have also kind of filed her in with the ipslandi ripper killings um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and that's that's where their brains at anyway dr mixer is not chill with that he thinks that phil is very suspicious so marxist a suspicious marxist yes indeed so he pressed the police to um, get to Phil further. Uh, Phil made a couple of snarky comments about um, how he hopes that whoever actually is apprehended is treated better than he was. I was like, dang, Phil. Okay. Um, so they did have Phil undergo a lie detector test, which he passed. Um, and he was also able to tell police a couple of other details that could be helpful, Um One thing that was not on the scene was Jane's purse, which Phil was able to describe uh, that she always carried a beige purse. It was like a clutch, so a small purse. Mm -hmm. Um, And that in the purse, they would find her ID, her driver's license, makeup, and a small amount of money. Uh, He said she usually carried about 10 bucks. Okay. Yeah. So he was able to give that detail. Um, sounds like he's trying to help. Yeah, yeah. And he stayed as, as local for as long as he could, um, as long as he had to. Um, mm-hmm. And then eventually he did, you know, he had to move on. And he went to the East Coast. He uh, lives abroad now and is a successful retired man. So, right. yeah. Um, but I think it was obviously, it sounds like it was very difficult for him i mean he loved this woman and you know this is terrifying absolutely terrifying and then you've got her family that thinks that you're public enemy number one right yeah 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 so um like i said the police linked jane's case with the ipsilanti ripper killings pretty much right away um Mm -hmm. her case did represent a change in mo amongst that line of killings she was the first to be shot uh another Mm -hmm. girl would be shot later um but she was the first one to be shot she was the first to be found dressed uh which makes her also stand out quite a bit from the other cases yeah yeah definitely she did otherwise fit the quote-unquote profile uh she fit the physical profile that was developing at this point petite brunette college student Mm -hmm. um found in a rural section of the area. Um, Technically, she was found in Wayne County, but where the uh, Denton Cemetery is, it's, like, literally a couple of blocks from Washtenaw. So it's not like... It was, like, Mm -hmm. a venturing out. It was not a venturing out by any means. Yeah, Yeah. Did create some jurisdictional pain in the butts later, but so it goes. So, you know, Dr. Mixer again never really believed in phil's innocence or it took a while for him to i should say um but he wasn't getting anywhere pressing the police on that (coughs) and he was very unhappy with how the investigation was going Mm -hmm. um he was very very good friends with the sheriff in muskegon county um and so he would kind of run his theories past sheriff culkins who was that dude um and then have Sheriff Culkin's pass that through to um, the Ann Arbor police. So, Okay. Uh, and I appreciate somebody flexing their connections. Right? Now, his first theory was that a jealous ex-girlfriend of Phil's had actually hired somebody to kill Jane. Um, they were
0: really connecting, trying to connect this to Phil. He,
1: yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, this was looked into, quickly found to not be plausible. Um. Next, Dr. Mixer wondered if um, things were circling back to Professor Bob Harris. Bob Harris was running for Ann Arbor mayor at the time, Mm -hmm. and Jane had worked on his campaign. Um, He was considered by many to be the radical candidate. I was literally about to ask you if he was a socialist. (laughs) He was the radical candidate. Was the verbiage that I found in, um, in newspapers outside of Ann Arbor within Ann Arbor? He was. It was quite well liked. He won. Actually, um, served two terms as mayor of Ann Arbor, and then had a successful career in public service until he died in two thousand five. So, um, but radical in the eyes certainly of people outside of Ann Arbor. I'm sh- I'm sure. Um, so, Dr. Mixer wondered if what was at the time his radical platform created enemies for Jane. Um, So could it have been a politically motivated homicide? Um, And they did pursue this theory. No leads were found. And so because these were the only things that were popping up, Jane did not have um, a ton. She didn't have a ton of friends, to be honest. She didn't have like men around her specifically. She didn't mm-hmm. have, like, a big circle. She hung out with Phil, and she was very academic. So yeah. there wasn't, like, this huge so- social circle to, you know, to like, exhaustively Like, people to pursue. interview, or, yeah. you know, do you have any enemies, and, yeah. Exactly. There was just – there weren't any. And because the backdrop, like I have stressed so much, was the Ipsy Ripper slayings, mm-hmm. she was considered to be the third. Soon after came a fourth and a fifth, onward and onward. Um, and she was shuffled in with those. Um, and that is kind of as the the '60s closed out. That's that's where her case was left. Um, the way that the Ypsilanti Ripper slayings kind of went, and of course, for more, um, go back to episodes two and three. Um, there was a conviction. John Norman Collins was convicted for the death of Karen Sue Beineman. Uh, who was Mm -hmm. that last victim in that line. Um, He was officially uh, convicted for that murder, but assumed to be the killer of the other victims as well. Um, I'm going to give their names again because I love them and I want to put them into the world again, just to let them know that we are thinking about them. Mary Flazar, Joan Schell, Marilyn Skelton, Don Bassam, Alice Callum, and Karen Byneman in Michigan, and Roxy Phillips in California. Um, so when he was put away in late 1969, everybody just heaved a huge sigh of relief. The killings yeah. stopped. So, you know, it's not like they got him for Karen Byneman's case, and oh crap, killings keep happening. The killings stopped. Mm-hmm. So people moved on. Honestly. The cases, mm. all of those cases were considered closed. They've never been officially closed. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course. Yeah. 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 So in an official capacity, they are considered to be open cases, open cold cases. They still are. Um,
0: Did he well, ever admit to any of the other ones?
1: No, he has He never. He's proclaimed his innocence. Never. He still does to this day. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So like I said, police moved on. The community moved on. The Mixer family moved on. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mixer would say that he had uh, a good feeling about John Norman Collins being the killer of Jane as well. Um, he believed firmly the police got the right guy. And from what I could deduce, what Dr. Mixer thought pretty much the family went with. So, okay. kind of like that patriarch of the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, he was satisfied. Mrs. Mixer, Marion, she spent the rest of her life basically preferring not to think about it. Yeah. Same with the sister, Barb, uh, and the yeah. brother. Barb uh, was never really able to totally kind of keep it out of her head because her daughter, Maggie, uh, was so obsessed with the story, um, mm-hmm. like I said. But um, so it's kind of kept kept in the forefront of the family's mind from a literary perspective, I would say. But yeah, for all intents and purposes the mixers especially the parents grew old and moved on.
0: I'm I'm curious and maybe this is a question for the end, but how did the family feel about um, barb writing all of these stories and maggie writing keeping or, yeah about maggie writing all these stories and keeping it alive? Dubious.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um but Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about that at the end because I I do think it's interesting. All right, we'll get back to it at the end. Yeah, and I'm really interested in, I I got really interested in the intersection between true crime and literature kind of in this Mm -hmm. world too. So yeah, we'll we'll, we'll circle back to that. So decades go by, right? Decades go by. Suddenly we find ourselves in 2002. There is a group of detectives with the Michigan State Police, including one Sergeant Eric Schroeder, who are charged with unearthing cold cases and reanalyzing them um, with an eye on how they could use DNA technology to solve cold cases. Neat. hmm So, Eric Schroeder was looking at, specifically, the Ypsilanti Ripper killings, and Jane's case bugged him. Okay? hmm It bugged him um, because of the differences we talked about. So... Uh, what they ended up being able to run was that amongst the evidence collected in Jane's case were two sources of potential killer's DNA. There was a drop of blood found on her hand. Mm-hmm. And there was a sample of some kind of biological substance found on her pantyhose. I will okay. say that substance was not blood. It was not semen. It's likely according to the forensic scientists to have been sweat Um, Oh, okay yeah so we're just going to say it was sweat um because we've run out of other bodily fluids it wasn't saliva so yeah that was the only other one what else can we have it was probably sweat um the drop of blood was tested first drops of Mm -hmm. blood pretty reliable evidence okay yes so in december 2003 the blood is run through codis Run through all known samples in the system and unbelievably produces a match. Oh my gosh, really? Yes. Uh, The match is to a John Rulis. Okay. In 2002, so within um, a year of the DNA being run, John Rulis was investigated and uh, pled guilty to beating his elderly mother to death. So he was already in custody when the DNA match was found. Mm-hmm. So Rulis had a violent history. It was a very promising uh, lead, obviously. It was blood. Yeah. It's blood on her hand. Blood on her hand, right? It was a perfect... If you see a picture of her hand, it was like a perfect circle of blood that fell. It wasn't spatter. It was a perfect circle. Um, so, John Rulis was a lifelong resident of southwestern Michigan, mostly Detroit, but not a long drive um, from mm-hmm. the Ann Arbor area. Um, no. And I do think it's interesting, too, to to keep in mind that Jane was found in the opposite direction of where she would have been traveling
0: mm-hmm.
1: if if David Johnson was taking her to where he was supposed to be taking her. She would not have been anywhere near Belleville that night. Yeah. Okay? Yeah um so where was John Rulis in 1969 he was in southwestern Michigan yeah he was four years old fuck Uh uh-huh yes is he a
0: clone are we really gonna go down a rabbit hole here
1: (laughs) that is unfortunately not the rabbit hole that I'm going down (laughs) Uh, project blue book I know right (laughs) sorry I'm so sorry maybe someday maybe someday Uh, John Willis was four years old his family lived in downtown Detroit at the time of the murders and he was four years old Mm -hmm. the lead could go basically nowhere he had no known connection to Jane Mixer so how could Mm -hmm. that possibly happen yeah yeah I need to know what the fuck how could that possibly happen she was taken to his house. Hmm. Oh, I'm gonna get so geeky in a little bit here. Oh. I'm gonna get so geeky. So oh, oh. Okay, take take me down this rabbit hole. Yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. I'm
0: ready. Let's go. Okay. I got my top hat and everything. Let's go. <laughs>
1: Good. Okay. So look. They couldn't do anything with John Rulis because he was four years old. He yeah. you know, obviously they talked to him. He does not know Jane Mixer. He doesn't know anything about this case. Um, mm-hmm. He did beat his mother to death. He's a bad guy. Um, yeah, yeah, bad person. His father was also murdered uh, a couple of decades before. That case was unsolved. Uh, he would have been young, but I wouldn't put it past him. He's a real bad dude. But he wasn't four. Yeah. Well. So. The sweat is tested in 2004. Mm-hmm. In about the middle of 2004. hmm It... furnishes a hit. This time to 62-year-old Gary Earl Letterman. Okay. I want to talk about Mr. Letterman here. At the time of the DNA hit, Gary Letterman was a retired nurse living in Goebbels, Michigan, which is a very small town on the western end of the state outside of Kalamazoo. Um, Letterman's DNA existed in the system because he... Um, basically had a history of uh, addiction. In 2001, Gary Letterman had a bad case of kidney stones. He was prescribed prescription painkillers. He became addicted to those painkillers. Because he worked as a nurse in a very large hospital system in Kalamazoo, he had kind of an easy avenue to commit um, prescription fraud, Mm -hmm. which he was arrested for. Mm -hmm. Um, he pled guilty he uh, was sentenced to um, enter a rehabilitation program which he did Um, he successfully underwent rehab and went on with his life he was um, when they showed up at his door on Thanksgiving Eve of 2004 he was a retired grandpa a Civil War enthusiast living in the same house for 25 years uh, in Mm -hmm. Goebbels, Michigan Um, he and his wife um, were, uh, so his wife was from the Philippines. She had a couple of kids from a previous marriage, so he was a stepdad. Uh, they were also hosting a South Korean exchange student in their home. Okay. So police knock on his door and tell him that he's being taken in, and he says, I didn't do this. Yeah. And he's taken into custody. Okay. So, Gary Letterman is the right age. He would have been about 25 Mm -hmm. at the time of Jane Mixer's killing. Okay. He did have, um, he was living in the region at the time in the Ann Arbor area, Mm -hmm. precisely where I was not able to find, but in the region. In the region. Okay. So.
0: I want to know if there's a connection between the two men. mm, Okay. Did they ever live in the same building on the same block? Like, do they know anybody in common? Like, you have DNA from two different people Mm -hmm. on a body. One of them we know didn't do it because he was four, and I could come up with all kinds of crazy theories about how a four-year-old could commit murder, but...
1: (laughs) I thought mine was going to today when I told her it was time to leave the park, but...
0: Yeah, but I don't want to get sued. We don't have the money for that. Truth. Um, Truth. but this other guy, okay, sounds like it could be more plausible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I need more. Is there a connection between these two men? Did they ever live near each other? Where there, there has to be something more going on here. You mentioned the laundry detergent.
1: So, uh, Gary Letterman's home was searched, kind of right, a, pretty much right away. Um, What was found in the home was nothing pertaining to Jane Mixer's case. Um, What they did find would cast him in somewhat of an insidious light. Um, He um, was in possession in his nightstand of two Polaroid pictures of the exchange student um, Mm -hmm. naked, passed out in his bed yikes yes he would say that he found those pictures um that she was kind of a party girl that he was hanging on to Mm -hmm. them because his wife was on a trip and which Mm -hmm. she was um and that they were going to talk about like what to do basically um Mm -hmm. so with those pictures um they were like well he's not a great guy okay um, they charged him with possession of child pornography, um, which, you know, that's what that was. So, yep. so that was one kind of mark against Gary Letterman. Either way, you slice it. So Gary Letterman is brought in. He is uh, put to trial. And what the prosecution's case is made up of is the DNA match. Mm -hmm. when the defense is like yeah but what about John Rulis Mm -hmm. there was no link whatsoever between John Rulis and Gary Letterman Okay, no link between John Rulis and Ann Arbor Mm -hmm. so the prosecution is like we don't know how it got there what what was up with that but please just forget that you ever heard the name John Rulis hmm that's tough that is tough isn't it it's tough to just forget that it is it is so what they do have um to kind of try to continue to go on with uh as the prosecution is that they have an old roommate of gary letterman's from the 60s who testified that gary owned a 22 caliber pistol yeah. in the 60s um there was also a handwriting in analyst brought in mm, so dubious. yes so what was found um somewhere on the campus of university of michigan the, the precise source of this post-it note is not on record which i also find very disturbing mm-hmm. um, and on that post-it note said mixer muskegon that post-it note was preserved um it was in somebody's dorm but no one ever said whose dorm and i'm very annoyed by that um Whoever it was, I assume they were investigated. It did not come up in any of my research. Who that person was? Um, there was a post-it. Uh-huh. When was the post-it found? It was found uh, in the in '69, like during the original investigation. It was kept in evidence. Were post-its invented then? It was a small piece. I'm of paper. sorry.
0: What I'm really thinking about is Romeo and Michelle's. <laughs> 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 we invented post-its. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, go ahead. That's nothing. To Thank do with you. It. <laughs> it was a small note, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but now you've like debunked. You're gonna make me sound like I don't know what I'm talking about with my case, and I do. I do. No, I'm just thinking about Romy and Michelle's high school reunion, and I'm googling it and wondering
0: now if that's where Elizabeth Holmes got her voice from. And anyway, I'm going down rabbit holes. I'm quitting. I give up. Can you go back to your story?
1: Hmm. Hmm. Post its were invented in 1968 okay i
0: think they even debunked that in romeo and michelle's high school
1: reunion but oh it's contested posted <gasps> the official company started selling them in 77 that's interesting it was tacked you know like thumbtacked it was affixed i'll say it was an, an affixed note so
0: they found a note affixed in somebody's dorm room in
1: 1969. Mm-hmm. And it was not, okay. for whatever reason, it was not useful at the time of the original investigation. How is that not useful? Yeah, I don't know. I don't understand. Cause, but there was nothing in any documentation I could find that tells us anything other than that the person whose dorm it was found in was not a person of any kind of interest. Mm. Yeah, it's, okay. it's weird it's very strange Sus. yes so handwriting analysts were brought in who said that that and they also showed um images of gary letterman's um writing mm-hmm. and it was consistent with his writing
0: so a po- like a note from 1969 and consistent with his handwriting now yes isn't uh, that interesting mm. Mm. yeah really sus there's so many things
1: that change your handwriting especially over the course of decades yeah i mean you're talking 40 years basically at this point yeah i mean my handwriting can look different i have uh creaky little wrists so if my wrists are hurting it looks one way if they feel good it looks a different way certainly my writing looks different now than it looked you know when i was in high school or whatever yeah yeah so uh, but they did bring those specialists in and they did testify so between the dna um the handwriting analysis and the fact that gary letterman owned a 22 at some point in the 1960s the jury deliberated for a very short amount of time they came back and they handed down a guilty verdict
0: i don't know if i'm sold on it totally Uh, the dna is the only thing really selling me
1: yeah i am not sold on this. I'm just going to be very honest. I'm not sold on this.
0: I feel like a 22 would have been a popular
1: gun. Yes, it is a popular gun. It is. Yeah, It is. So I'm going to talk about some geeky statistics. Okay? Yes. So um, there is this amazing article that exists um, from the winter 2018 issue of JuraMetrics Magazine, volume 58, issue number 2. It is a Bayesian statistical analysis of the DNA contamination scenario specific to this case. Yes, 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 yes. It is written by John T. Wickstead, Nicholas J.S. Christenfeld, and Jeffrey N. Rauter. Thank you, gentlemen, for this 32 pages of statistical geekery. It took me an hour and a half to read and understand. The Starbucks I was sitting at to read this gave me a free drink because I looked distraught. <laughs> <laughs> Truth, she came up to me oh, and she geez. was like, um, I made an extra drink and you look upset. <laughs> it's like, uh, oh, it's because this is like making me so upset right now. Um, so this is a long and very dense article and it's, it's very, 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 um, statistics heavy. Gonna, My favorite kind of things. Me too. I'm going to recommend that you read it if you are interested in this kind of thing. I am gonna, We'll link it. Yes, we totally will. I am going to give the broad strokes version of it. Okay. So the hypotheses have to be that um, you have to either buy into one of these kind of three data points, right? Hypothesis one is that Letterman's DNA was deposited on Mixer's clothing only at the crime scene in 1969. Okay. Hypothesis two. Letterman's DNA was deposited on Mixer's clothing only in the lab in 2002. Hypothesis three. Letterman's DNA was deposited on Mixer's clothing at the time of the crime scene in 1969 and in the lab of 2002. Okay. Right? So, you also have to consider whether or not you buy into the idea that somehow, some way, John Rulis could also have been at that crime scene. The other thing that uh, needs to be stated at this point as well is that uh, Jane Mixer's own DNA was not detected in any significant amount on her own clothing. What? Yes. The forensic uh, scientist that testified about this said that some people are sloughers and some people are not sloughers. so some of us give off a lot of our dna um we shed a lot of skin cells um and some of us don't so the i am a sloffer girl me too i took off a pair of leggings the other day and it was like a cloud of just like please exfoliate please exfoliate please exfoliate dry
0: skin and loose hair for days yes
1: same same can never be a murderer. <laughs> for, only for that reason, obviously.
0: <laughs> uh, but, but still, none of her DNA on her clothes. No, no. Mm, I'm
1: sensing lab errors. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. So, and I'm going to read this directly from this article. The next step is delineating the relevant data for analysis. According to our reading of the trial transcripts there are four main observations four main observations called events that comprise the relevant data the four events are not disputed by either the defense or the prosecution event 1 or event m there was a definite match between letterman's known profile and the dna found on mixer's pantyhose 2 the matching dna on mixer's pantyhose was consistent with the saliva because was consistent with saliva. Okay. Um, that is, trial testimony from lab technicians indicated that Letterman's DNA on Mixer's pantyhose was not consistent with blood or semen, but was consistent with other biological materials, including saliva or sweat. Um, I thought we said it wasn't saliva. Yeah. There's been some mixed... The court, actual court documentation um says it's not conclusive whether it was uh sweat or saliva but it was likely to be sweat. Okay. So I'm not sure where that where they're pulling this exactly. Um Yeah. 3. Science has a higher threshold than the law. Yes, God knows. God knows. Um Letterman's DNA was exclusively found on Mixer's pantyhose. IE there was no DNA from Mixer herself. Okay. Letterman's reference sample following his arrest in 2001 and Mixer's cold case crime evidence from 1969 were in the lab contemporaneously in the first six months of 2002, though they were not analyzed on the same days.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So, they go on to describe um, basically kind of the system for... Probability that they are going to then kind of use um, this series of equations to, mm-hmm. to kind of trace out and track. And again, if you're into this stuff, by all means, read this article. So what the math boils down to at the end of the day. So the equation is set up so that um, mm-hmm. if the end result of the equation is closer to zero, that is mm-hmm. less probability, zero being no probability, effectively. The closer the equation ends up to one, the more probable it was. Okay? Mm-hmm. There's other math going on here as well, but this is the, the clincher in my view. So I'm sure that it is an incredibly long formula. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's wild. It's wild. So if you assume or believe that there is no chance whatsoever – zero chance that there was DNA contamination going on in the lab, when that equation is run that way, the probability is very, very, very close to one, as in Gary Letterman is statistically extremely likely to have committed this crime.
0: Okay, but there's never zero chance of contamination. Right.
1: If you can admit to perhaps a one in fifteen hundred is the number that they use. A one in fifteen hundred chance that there was contamination at the lab. Which is They're probably and they're probably using a standard measure of like mm-hmm. this is the standard uh rate of error. Right. Yes. Um and and keeping the John Rulis equation that's a bad word for this. Keeping the John Rulis question in your mind. Um almost certainly implies that there, as, at some point in this lab, some kind of contamination going on, mm-hmm. right? So if you buy into even a 1 in 1,500 chance that um, there was contamination in the lab, then when the equation is run, it is very, very, very close to zero, effectively ruling out Gary Letterman. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah. Your thoughts. I think that you have to accept the possibility of error. You have to. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how we do science. So, and if you accept the possibility of error because that's consistent with how we do science, then you have to accept that that low probability
1: of it being him. Yeah. And, and you know, the question that the article doesn't answer is, like, okay, then what – you could play with this equation a billion different times, I guess is what I'm mm-hmm. saying. Like, OK, if, if I don't buy into 1 in 1,500, how does the equation go if I could say 1 in 3,000, if I could say 1 in 5,000 chance or whatever? Um, it doesn't trace out every single scenario mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, I'm assuming not. like you that they went with a standard uh, rate of error. Um, but when you look at the math this way, again, if you think that there's possibly anything, any kind of margin for error with what's going on at the state crime lab, then it's more reasonable to to think of Gary Letterman as innocent of this crime than guilty. Are there any other
0: suspects?
1: Anything else? No. That's the thing. So, Gary Letterman is uh, found guilty. He's convicted. He's sent to prison. He um, contends that he is innocent he uh, makes a statement at sentencing that he you know he plans to pursue every uh, avenue of appeal that he can Um, and he did much of this information including this article um, I found via links through garyisinnocent.org which is run by the committee to free gary letterman Mm-hmm. Um, and it has all kinds of interesting information on it, um, and all that you know, good stuff. If if you want to find it, uh, it does have some links to court documents, which is extremely useful. Um, extremely useful. Mm-hmm. So um, he contends it is his innocence. There is uh, a couple of attempts at appeal. One of them um, is basically written. Um, the structure of the appeal is a uh, a letter from a statistician who basically runs through what I just ran through and says, like, given this, there's no way. Michigan comes back and is like, how dare you question our lab? No. Shoots it down.
0: A oh. lot of labs, though, have been under fire yeah. over the last five, ten years. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So... That's kind of where the case stops, effectively. Gary Letterman Mm -hmm. is convicted. He is sent to prison. Uh, Gary Letterman did die a couple of years ago uh, Uh, in jail. Um, So mm -hmm. he is no longer with us. So the question is, did Gary Letterman die in jail, an innocent man?
0: Mm -hmm. I just that evidence isn't compelling to me. Yeah. Like you had a single drop of sweat and you already had one drop of blood from somebody that you knew it couldn't have been and... I don't know. Like, the whole narrative of how this crime could have happened was never clearly laid out to me.
1: Right. Yeah, no scenario was built for how he could have done it. Uh, he was not a University of Michigan student. Um, Detective. Why would he have been in in Ann Arbor? Right. Um, yeah. So he would have had to have known about the ride board, gone to the ride board, done all of this, right? Um Eric Schroeder, the, the sergeant, the detective, um, was a, he was, I would argue, almost singularly focused on getting a conviction in Jane's case. And one thing that he had said, um, after talking to a friend of his was, um, that looking at Gary Letterman versus John Norman Collins as the killer for Jane Mixer, that, uh, the way that jane's body and her belongings were left looked like a um the way that a soldier would leave a a body of a fallen comrade in war um with their stuff kind of folded next to them so that it could be grabbed quickly later and interesting yeah um john norman collins never served in any kind of branch of the military gary letterman did um, this kind of painted a little light bulb for Eric Schroeder to think, well, there's that. Um, and there was also, um, I will say this too, that in the different sources that I looked at, there were very differing accounts of how much genetic material was on the pantyhose. Mm-hmm. Um, it was described in a couple of places as scant. It was described in Maggie Nelson's book, The Red Parts, as a quote unquote mother load. Oh, yeah. The amount, though, is kind of not that important as long yeah, as the it's not Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I don't know. Is there... I don't know how consistent DNA you can get off of sweat. Yeah. Unless it has the skin cells and everything on it. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And is it sweat or is it saliva? Mm-hmm. Right? If you can't say for sure, then you know
0: if you can't even tell if it's sweat or saliva how are you telling the dna and i don't know maybe somebody that knows dna better than i do can explain that Mm -hmm. but i don't like logically in my mind i would think it'd be easier to tell if it was sweat or saliva versus who it came from yeah
1: yeah and so what i'll say is this when i walked into this story to tell it Mm -hmm. all i knew was again the broad strokes i knew that somebody went down for it in the early 2000s and that that person was in prison i even kind of like flippantly mentioned that in that episode right
0: yeah yeah. um
1: what i now honestly think and i know that my theory is um a shoestring but Uh compared to the evidence against gary letterman excluding whatever happened in that lab It's just as good. Okay? Mm -hmm. I would, when push comes to shove, if you ask me if I think it's more likely that it was Gary Letterman or John Norman Collins, I'm going to go with John Norman Collins. (sighs) Here's why. Even though she was different at that point in the killings, it still, to my mind, showed a degree of experimentation. He left her somewhere yeah. very public. Um, he fiddle-faddled with her stuff. Um, and that was different. She was on her period like all of the other girls were. Um, so there's that. What I find the most compelling is the laundry soap granules. Mm-hmm. During the span of the killings, John Norman Collins was house-sitting his, um, for his aunt and uncle.
0: That's right. This is what
1: convicted him was the fact that uh, he had given himself a haircut in the basement uh-huh. laundry room, where they also found handcuffs and a missing box mm-hmm. of laundry detergent. Okay, so, um, and his hair was found on Karen Subiniman, so that linked Karen Subiniman to the basement laundry room at his aunt and uncle's house.
0: Oh, Jane
1: Mixer is found with a a large a notable amount of laundry soap granules stuck to her clothes. Yeah. And and police think, and the the medical examiner think, that she was held somewhere before she was um, dumped off at Denton Cemetery. So, one question I don't know the answer to is precisely the dates that John Collins was watching the house. Um, But because the killings were in such kind of quick succession, I think it stands to Mm -hmm. reason. Um. Yeah, His aunt was also missing a laundry box, of a box of detergent. Um, mm-hmm. And he later had a roommate that would say on the record that um, he kept a laundry soap box that, you know, laundry soap was kept in, in boxes back in the day, um, mm-hmm. full of like girls things, earrings, etc. Really? Yes. So does this entire case hinge on laundry detergent is my question. honestly.
0: I mean, that is a lot more compelling to me. Yeah. Like, I, because John Norman Collins' murders happened in such rapid succession, I do think he was doing a lot of uh, experimentation with how to lay the bodies and where to lay the bodies and, like, so much staging. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't know. To me, that level of staging for like a one-off
1: murder feels –
0: you would have to sell me more on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that was said at one point was that the fact that she was covered signaled some kind of compassion. Um, I think you could say that, but I think you could also say it was part of the show. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he wanted a shock. He wanted, to sh- he wanted shock value. And what's more shocking than finding a body at a cemetery? Yeah. So Yeah. I I do not feel satisfied about the conclusion of Jane's case whatsoever. I I'm honestly a lot more sold on your theory. Thank you. Um the upshot if my theory is true it means that John Norman Collins is in fact in jail and that's good. Um <laughs> That's good. He's still there, you know? He's he's gotten weirdly ugly. Um Mhm. Yeah, time has yeah. not been kind to John Collins. Yeah, um, he
0: aged like a guy that peaked in high school. Yes,
1: and that's good because I want the evil to eat him from the inside exactly. out. Exactly, one hundred percent. Eat
0: it from the inside out. That's right. Show
1: that evilness. Yes, that's right. Um. Yeah, I just, especially if you like the like the statistics tell us in that article. If you can agree to there being a sliver of a chance of contamination in that lab, then mm-hmm. does that, and this is a, you know, a question that I, that I put out to the world, does that then kind of nullify that evidence, right? Or does it create enough reasonable doubt? It didn't in the jury, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the jury is also looking at a family that is being brought back into court after Mm -hmm. you know many many years marion mixer jane's mom had died um but dr mixer was 90 sitting in that courtroom watching this all go down watching pictures of his dead daughter's body again in the courtroom like i i think that they wanted to see that case closed the the county wanted to see that case closed you know
0: and i don't
1: yeah
0: i don't see it like, I'm sorry and I feel bad, but yeah, I
1: you always have to leave room for error. Mm. You have to, yeah. And if there's room for error, then all the other evidence is extremely shaky. It's not even circumstantial. It's like like, okay, we have the space between 1969 and uh, the time of the trial in 2004 and 2005 is longer than um, our time you know, between now and when we were in college. But just hypothetically speaking, would you be able to, and a weapon is different. I understand that, Mm -hmm. but not if weapons are kind of a part of your life, right? So would you be able to confidently say whether or not I owned an iPod in college? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Would you be able to say what kind of iPod it was? It was probably pink. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a full size or a Nano? It was a full size. The Nano ones were the little itty bitty ones, right? I had a Nano. So can you convict me on that?
0: I, but here's my thing. And I feel like saying like, okay, this person owned a 22 is like saying this person owned a Honda Accord. Right. Like. Lots of people do. Yes. And ag- again, especially in that era, in that region, gun ownership was. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So common. We're talking about masculinity in the 60s. Right. <laughs> okay. Guns were there. We're talking about the Midwest. Yes. In general. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not as though the roommate was able to produce a photo of this gun, the gun itself was not produced. Right, mm-hmm. so you know i th- you know he, yeah, he had a twenty two uh thirty five years ago, sure, I'm just not with it, mm-hmm. I'm not with mm-hmm. it, I just uh yeah it it doesn't parse to me, and you know, and there's a degree of like my gut speaking here, and also, yeah, you know, I'll kind of circle back to Maggie Nelson's book um a little bit, like the way that it kind of seemed to go down with her family in the end, there was existential exhaustion. Like, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, they had thought this whole time, you know, that Collins had gone down for all of the Ypsilanti Ripper killings and they were done with it. And then it resurfaces. And, um, there's kind of like some debate in the family about like, who's going to go to the trials, like, how does this all sit with everybody? And there's this like great degree of ambivalence kind of within the family about kind of how to handle like being a part of the, the trial. Um, so, and in the end, really like, obviously you never, when you go through something like that in your family, the trauma of that is a part of your life, right? Like from (laughs) now on. So, you know, like Barb, the, the sister of Jane, um, spent her whole life, like, in fear, right? Like, there's a moment in the book where um, Barb and Maggie are in Ann Arbor together for the trial, and uh, Maggie goes out with an old friend, and she walks back to the, like, hotel or the Airbnb or whatever that she's staying at with, with her mom, and her mom is, like, very upset because she thinks that somebody would have retaliated and gone after Maggie, like that's how something like this sits in a family, oh,
0: wow, you know, yeah,, um, yeah,
1: so I just say that to to say that like I guess there's like there's nuance in how how the family seems to deal with this it it I didn't get the sense that it was like, yes, Gary Letterman is going down for this, um, when the you know the court emptied out after the verdict was read dr mixer collapsed in sobs and um maggie nelson described them not really as sigh as sobs of relief but of just pure exhaustion
0: yeah yeah oh god to have all of this brought back up after 40 years yeah yeah
1: um yeah. and pure exhaustion is how i feel about it honestly mm-hmm. because I'm left with this like like I don't want to call into question the entire criminal justice system in Michigan. Are, you don't well, you don't okay, maybe I do. Um, <laughs> I don't want to call into question a state crime lab, but also I do, you know. Um, and I don't say that to like besmirch their work. What I say is that anytime you're conducting any kind of work, there's always a margin for error. There has to be, right? Mm-hmm. And I would imagine that usually that margin of error does not have life or death consequences. But sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. And I'm not convinced in this case that it doesn't.
0: And it feels like for the family, this wasn't, there was no catharsis. There was no like, oh, he's finally put away. There was no like,
1: we got him. Because all of this is so vague. Yeah. It is. And I, you know, I've exhausted everything out there about it. And this is still where we find ourselves, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So that is my case.
0: That is frustrating. Indeed. Indeed. That is frustrating yeah. cuz yeah, when you lay it all out, it really does feel like this is more likely John Norman Collins. And did this and did this get opened up for no good reason? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And did an innocent man spend the rest of his life in jail. Mm-hmm. You know? Because at one point he got caught for writing himself a prescription for some Vicodin. <sighs> That's my question.
0: That's so frustrating. This is frustrating. I hate you.
1: <laughs> Great. Tell me how you're going to frustrate us next week, then. We'll <laughs> just go straight <laughs> into that
0: we'll just oh okay fine (laughs) fine we'll just go straight into my frustration yeah i don't think you're going to be well there's some points of frustration next week but i think you're going to be excited okay the case we're doing next week i it has been on my list of cases literally since day one Mm. and so i'm finally i'm excited to finally just like get it out there we are going to be talking about the kent state massacre you have been waiting forever and this is going to be
1: so interesting
0: it, it's going to be fascinating we're actually going to be staying in the exact same year 1969
1: it's such an interesting year politically and uh socially it's a fascinating time period yeah
0: so tommy gets to geek out and help me talk about vietnam
1: Yay! i have a degree in history <laughs> and i never get to use it <laughs> shout out to professor sumner i still think about you what up sums <laughs> so we finally get to use that history degree Yay! to talk about
0: vietnam Yay! talk about uh the anti-war movement yes! and uh talk about how the national guard murdered a bunch of college kids
1: and got basically. away with it basically yeah well definitely come back for that peeps because it's gonna get real yeah. it's gonna get it real. it's gonna get real yes I uh, think my dog has fished an eggshell out of the garbage can and is eating it behind me, as you can see on the Zoom. She has fished something, and I can see her just happily munching. Yeah. As such, I'm going to have to ask that we conclude (laughs) so that I can deal with whatever anarchy is going on in my house. (laughs) We'll talk about more anarchy next week, Yes, we will. We will. So... I'm sorry to have frustrated everybody. I am. I have been frustrated, alike for the past few weeks about this. Now you're frustrated. I'm sorry. Um, have another beer before you go to bed. Uh, that's all I got. That's all we got. And that's all we got. Thanks, guys. Yes. Thanks for listening. Thank you. <laughs> um, please remember to be nice and eat cheese and know that we oh. love you. We love you. And don't let your dogs eat the eggshells. No. And I'm sorry that everyone is so mad. <laughs> oh. Hey, Lulu. Joe Lewis. Crate up. My boxer's name is Joe Lewis. I'm from the D. Go. <laughs>